We'll take your Bibles and Odin, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we continue our Advent series. We looked at the first 25 verses of Luke 1 last week, and this morning we will look at verses 26 through 45 as we look at the theme of peace. I'll never forget the weekend that Andrea and I got engaged. I had been thinking about this for quite a while, the way in which this was going to work. I actually would have done it earlier than I did it if her father would have let me. That's another story and another sermon illustration. But uh, I was really excited about the moment, and I had planned this kind of really dramatic way in which this is going to happen, and uh, it was a great night. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, there were, there were fireworks that night. I mean, that literally, we literally had fireworks the night that Andrea and I got engaged, and uh, all of her family was there and gathered. It was just a really special night, and, and I knew as I thought through that whole scenario that there were two things I was responsible for. I was responsible for the engagement and the honeymoon. Now, I had never thought about anything between that. I just thought we got engaged and then got married and went on a honeymoon. I learned very quickly that there's a lot in between that. I was not emotionally prepared for the amount of work and effort and thought that was going to go in to the planning of a wedding. This is, this is no joke. And this is before Pinterest where you just went on and saw what somebody else did in their wedding and did the same thing. This is complicated. And uh, I remember coming to Andrea's house the day after the engagement, sitting down with her parents and trying to find a way uh, that we could find a date for this between her father, who travels a lot internationally as in a pastor, and my father, who's a traveling evangelist, and it was stressful from the very beginning. And then I remember going to Barnes & Noble with Andrea and trying as hard as I could to act excited about spending a few hours in the wedding section of Barnes & Noble and looking at the Martha Stewart wedding book and just really trying to stir up some excitement on that. And that went on for months and months and months. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've often told guys that when the wedding's over and you get in the car at the end, the thing you're most excited about is that the wedding's over. Like that's the best thing. It's like the, that the wedding is now behind us. But even in the midst of all of the, the stress and the complications, the truth is that really is an exciting time. A time of great anticipation and planning and, and dreaming this is exactly what was happening in, in Mary's life. Mary was engaged. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. And if you were to read Matthew chapter 1, it tells us that Joseph was a good man. He was an honorable man. He was a hardworking man. He was from a good family. He was a descendant of, of David. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm fairly positive. He, he probably even looked like one of the men from a, from a Hallmark movie. Not... not not the wealthy prince who comes in disguise to America, but, you know, the, the hardworking guy who lost his wife and is now a single father. That guy. I'm sure Joseph looked similar to that. He was, a, he was a good man, and this was a time of excitement for them, preparing for the wedding, thinking about the wedding, excited about what was ahead. But in the midst of all the excitement and all the anticipation, in the midst of all of the planning and all of the dreaming, there was a rather major turn of events. Now, we're not talking about the fact that the videographer might have canceled or the dress wasn't ready. No, this was a significant turn of events. And it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 1. It says in verse 26 that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And the angel that was sent from God came to a virgin, betrothed, legally bound, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now it says the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now what it says in verse 29 is interesting. It doesn't say that Mary was troubled by the arrival of an angel sent from God to speak to her. Mary was more troubled by what the angel said. It says in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is what threw her off. She could not understand the way in which she was greeted. She couldn't understand that an angel came to her and called her a favored one. The angel's actually going to say it again in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now we know that Mary knew the Old Testament. She was raised in a home that taught her the things of the Lord. We know this because next week we're going to look at the prayer she prayed in Luke 1, which makes it clear that Mary understood the Old Testament. She was familiar with the things of the Lord. And because she was familiar with the things of the Lord, she would have understood that the idea of being a favored one, of having favor with the Lord, was something that was used frequently in the Old Testament. But not used frequently to refer to someone like Mary. The Bible tells us that Abraham was favored of the Lord. Noah was favored of the Lord. Joseph was favored of the Lord. Moses was favored of the Lord. Samuel was favored of the Lord. David was favored of the Lord. These are all those who have been greatly used of God. Those on whom God has bestowed his favor. And all of a sudden an angel comes and refers to Mary with the same title, which would have certainly been surprising and maybe even a bit troubling to her. But the angel continues, do not be afraid for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. But it wasn't that she was just going to bear a son. It wasn't that she was simply going to have a child. What they say next is even more incredible. Look at what it says, and he will be, verse 32, great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be great, it says. He will be called the Son of the Most High, a title used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the coming Messiah. That he will be a king, it says. But not simply any king. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and he will reign forever. He will be a king and his rule will never end. Now every king comes and every king goes. There is only one king that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and only one whose kingdom never ends and whose rule never ends and that is the promised Messiah. It's all of a sudden becoming clear to Mary, having certainly understood the Old Testament, that what the angel was coming to say to her was that she was going to give birth to Messiah. And the reason that she is referred to as the favored one is because you can't imagine anything more special than this. She was certainly one in whom God delighted. She was one in whom God was blessing, one in whom God had found approval. 
She was certainly highly favored. She says much to her, she hears much to her surprise that she was going to give birth to Messiah. I mean, this is the one who, in Genesis 3.15, we're told is going to crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 29, is from the line of the tribe of Judah. From Psalm chapter 2, the one who is the son of God, who will rule and reign, and every other king will bow down in reverence to him. This is the one of whom Isaiah 9.6 says, will be the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, and the prince of peace. Now, now, this is not Mary bragging about her son. I mean, we would understand if, if that was the case. This is not Mary saying, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a child and the child is going to be great. I mean, mothers do that, right? I mean, mothers are great at this. Mothers often overestimate their child's greatness. They often talk about it, their child in a way in which everyone who hears them is going, you know, actually everyone knows your child is not that great. I'll never forget when I was a, a pastoral intern in seminary at First Baptist Church in Durham. I got to preach every once in a while, and we had this kind of internal little competition, and everyone knew about it except the pastor. And the competition was who could sell the most cassette tapes from one particular sermon. That's right, cassette tapes. They were duplicated immediately after the sermon, made available after the sermon, or you could order them by telephone the next day. I had preached that Sunday, and all of a sudden the pastor's assistant called me and said, Josh, you're not going to believe this. You just broke the record for the amount of cassette tapes sold from one Sunday service. I said, excuse me? Yes, you just broke the record for the most cassette tapes sold. And it's at that point I thought, well, I, I, mean, I mean, I knew this day was coming. <laughs> I mean, the pastor's good, but he's no Josh Smith. And as I was thinking of all these incredible thoughts of myself and thinking that probably what's going to happen is the next Sunday the pastor's going to resign and, and give it over to me. And it was then in which the pastoral assistant said this. He said, yes, your mother just called and ordered 25. That's a, tr that's a true story. And this is what mothers do. But, but this was not Mary just bragging about how great her son was going to be. This was an angel, as it tells us from that first verse, who came from God with the message that, Mary, you're going to have a child and he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. He will have a kingdom that will never end. Now, this is, this is great news. I mean, generations and generations have waited. We talked about last week the, the 12 generations who had waited in silence from the last time in which God spoke, believing that someday the Messiah would come, but waiting and waiting and waiting, and all of a sudden Mary discovers that she's the one. But in the midst of, of the joy and the excitement, there, there were certainly some questions. I mean, I think the most obvious question is the one that Mary asked in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, what Mary's saying is that, Angel, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this. I know you come from heaven. You, you may not fully understand the way things work down here, but, but here on earth, virgins don't have babies. And he responds in verse 35, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, by his creative power, will put this child inside of you. The same God that created mankind out of dust is the same God that will put this child inside of you. And you say, well, why does it need to happen that way? And that's the answer that was given by the angel, so that this child will be called the Son of God. This one will be fully God and fully man. He will be the son of God and the son of man. He will be born of Mary, but he will have come from the Holy Spirit of God. It had to happen this way. Now, this doesn't come as a big surprise to us because most of us have heard this story since the time that we were children. As a matter of fact, this is one of the first stories that we ever hear as a child in church. But can you imagine what Mary was thinking as she heard this story. I mean, when I, when I read this story and I, I, I think about all that's going on here, I don't question the ability of God. God is able to do this. He's able to put that child into Mary's womb. I trust the wisdom of God. God knew exactly when and, and how and what needed to happen. But I think we do have to stop and just acknowledge what's going on in Mary's life. And this is one of those moments, kind of like we looked at last week, that you never often think about and just stop and acknowledge, what was this like for Mary? I mean, where does this, this leave her? It leaves her engaged and pregnant. And in the first century, this came with all kinds of social disgrace, much unlike it would be today. The fact is, is she's probably very confident at this moment that Joseph may not stay with her. She knows that she'll be outcast. She knows that there will be all kinds of shame. And yet, she has to, to figure out how to explain this. She has to go have a conversation with Joseph. Joseph, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm pregnant. To which Joseph would say, well, who is he? I'm going to kill him. To which Mary has to say, well, no, it's, it's not anybody else. To which Joseph says, well, it's not me. And if it's not me, it's got to be somebody else. To which Mary has to say, no, see, an angel came to me and told me that I was going to have a child. And you're not involved. No other man's involved in this. And, and I don't know how to tell you this, but it's, it's going to be a Messiah. Mary, are you, are you feeling okay? Do you, need a, do you need a lay down for a minute? And then Joseph had to tell his parents and his friends. At some point, Joseph had to tell his parents that Mary, who is engaged to, was pregnant, and then communicate to them that it's not because of him and it's not because of anybody else, that it's because an angel was sent from God and the Holy Spirit of God had put a child into Mary's womb and this child was going to be the Messiah. Now, I, I would imagine some people believed them. But I would imagine many just thought they had come up with this in order to hide the shame and the disgrace. I mean, can you imagine this moment for Mary? Was it exciting? Yes. Was it a thrill? Yes. Was it filled with all kinds of questions and chaos and concerns? It had to have been. I mean, where does Mary go and, and what does Mary do? Who's going to understand this story? And it's then in which the angel continues. Verse 36. 
The angel says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. You say, well, who in the world is going to understand that an angel visited Mary and told her in the most unlikely of circumstances that she was going to have a baby? And the angel says, well, well Mary, there is one who is going to understand. Your cousin Elizabeth is going to understand. You see, because virgins don't have babies and old barren women don't have babies, that is unless God wants them to. If God wants them to, virgins can have babies and old barren women can have babies because nothing, as the angel says, is impossible with God. And right as Mary is wondering where in the world she's going to go and who in the world is going to understand, the angel tells her that Elizabeth is in a similar situation. She at this point doesn't know the details. She doesn't know that an angel has visited Elizabeth. All she knows is that she too is finding herself in a very surprising circumstance. And say, well, what does she do? Well, look at what it says in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to the town of Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She ran to Elizabeth's house. Now, I don't know what was going on in her mind on that trip, but she certainly had already had some of these conversations with others because she stayed here a while. And she'd probably already told her parents and, and Joseph and Joseph and his parents and now she's figuring out how she's going to tell her cousin Elizabeth. Well, she doesn't realize that she's not going to have to say anything. Because even though no one else may have understood what it was like for an angel to visit you and give you this surprising news, Elizabeth absolutely understood exactly what that was like. Look what it says. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, Elizabeth said, should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The moment she walked in, John the Baptist is doing what he was created to do, and that is to announce the coming of the Messiah. You say, well, how did Elizabeth know all of this? Because her husband was told that she was going to have a child, and that child was going to be the one that Malachi 4 promises is going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. So she knew that the Messiah was coming. Because her child was coming in the spirit of Elijah and preparing the way. And all of a sudden Mary walks in. The baby in her womb leaps for joy as an announcement the Messiah was coming in. And can we just say, by the way, if we ever wondered if life begins at conception, do we need to go any further than this? These were children in the wombs of Elizabeth and Mary. And so it is that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, overwhelmed with the blessing and goodness of God. The baby in her womb leaped for joy the moment that Mary walked in. As I read this story and I think about all that's going on in Mary's life, and you think about the joy, the excitement, the questions, the concerns, all of the chaos that is surrounding this, from preparing a wedding to now that she's going to have a child, 
there's just one verse that gives us some insight into the condition of Mary's heart. And it's verse 38, look at it. In response to all of this, you're going to have a child, it's going to come from the power of the Most High who will overshadow you. Here's Mary's response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm a servant of the Lord, so just let it be done to me. I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know I belong to the Lord. I know I have surrendered my life to the Lord. I exist as a bond servant of the Lord. I exist for you and for your purposes. So even though this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and it's clouded by all kinds of questions, let it be done to me whatever you see is best. And from her statement in verse 38, you just sense that even in the midst of all of this, there is an overwhelming peace a soul-satisfying contentment and rest that is in Mary's heart because she has surrendered to the will and work of God in her life. She's pregnant, she's engaged, she's a teenage girl, pregnant with a baby that is not her fiancé's, and yet she is left with a prevailing sense of joy. Now, here's the question I ask. How is it that we can experience a prevailing sense of peace in our hearts when everything around us seems to be so chaotic? I mean, is that a question that resonates with you? Is that something that would be interesting to you to know? How is it that when everything seems to be raging around us and our circumstances seem to be raging and all of this tension and stress is there externally, how is it that internally we can have a prevailing sense of peace, a soul-satisfying contentment, where in the midst of the most overwhelming situations we can simply say, I am your servant, let it be done to me according to your word. I mean, I think this question matters. I, as I prayed a moment ago, I, I think it matters for us just because life is hard. But isn't it strange how this time of year, it seems that all the craziness just comes to the surface. That all the stuff that's been buried throughout the year seems to come back and there seems to be more chaos around us. I'm not pointing out your family members. I'm just saying that you get all this dysfunction in the same house and, and all of a sudden the peace that was there a week ago is no longer there. I just want to give you this morning, by way of application, what I think this tells us about the way in which peace can prevail inside of us, even when outside of us, chaos seems to be prevailing. I want you to write these things down. The first thing you need to know about this soul-satisfying contentment and peace is this. Peace, listen, is not dependent on your circumstances. Write that down. Peace is not dependent upon your circumstances. Now, I feel like if you've been raised in church, you know that. At least you say you know that. But I find in my own life, and I think this will re resonate with you, the, the tendency to kind of get in that rut of blame. Well, I would be at peace if only this. Or if only this. If, if only this. If only my children, if only my spouse, if only my work, if only my boss, if only my finances, if only this and this and this. And all of a sudden we find ourselves thinking that if God would just change this, then I would be at peace. 
And we spend so much time trying to get God to change our circumstances, we end up missing God himself. And could it be that the reason you're in the circumstance that you're in is precisely because the sovereign God of the universe who loves you and knows you and has already promised that he is using all things in your life to conform you into the image of Christ has put you in that circumstance so in the midst of it you might meet him. And the greatest thing he can do for you is not to remove the circumstance. The greatest thing he can do for you is to help you to find out in the midst of that circumstance to experience his peace. Could it be that the very thing that you think, if God would just take this away, I would be at peace, is the very thing God is going to leave there. So that in the midst of it, you might discover that he is sufficient. Listen, God does not have to calm the storm in order to calm your spirit. It is possible for the storm to rage and none of your circumstances change and for you to still experience a settled peace in your heart, a soul-satisfying contentment that comes from the Almighty God. Peace is not dependent upon your circumstances. Let me give you the second truth. Peace is dependent upon a person. Peace is dependent upon a person. It is not dependent upon your circumstances, but it is dependent upon a person. As I begin to read this text over and over and over again, I begin to notice how God is just all over this text. I mean, in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. And then it says in verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me, referring to Jesus. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You see in verse 41 that the the Spirit of God is involved in this circumstance. You see in Verse 42, that Jesus is involved in this circumstance. Verse 45, that the Father is involved in this circumstance, that God is all over this. And it's showing this to remind us that the peace that Mary is experiencing in the midst of a rather chaotic and difficult and confusing situation is the peace that she's experiencing from God himself. As we read this morning in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is in fact the Prince of Peace. In John 14, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them and and go away, and they respond, but we've left everything for you. What are we going to do? He gives them all kinds of promises. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and if I don't go, then you can't come with me afterwards. Maybe the greatest promise he gives them is he says, listen, my peace I give to you. In other words, I'm going to leave you here and it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and I'm going to give you a great commission which is challenging and I'm going to leave you in the midst of a dysfunctional world in which everything is broken, in which you're broken and everything around you is broken. But let me tell you what I'm going to give you. I'm going to leave with you my peace. Simply saying, I'm not going to remove you from the circumstance, but what I am going to do is I'm going to allow you in the midst of it to experience the peace that only I can give. And let me just say this as clearly as I possibly can. There is absolutely no peace outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
none. If you feel a longing in your heart and a desire for a peace to settle in upon you, where in the midst of very difficult circumstances you can be at rest, let me tell you, that is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death so that he might take upon himself all of your sin and all of your shame and pay for it. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you receive his righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. You become a child of God. All the promises of God now belong to you in Jesus Christ. And it is possible for you not only to have peace with God, but to experience the peace of God with a relationship with Christ. But outside of Jesus Christ, there is never any peace. And God created it to be that way that you would always find yourself overwhelmed with the realities of life unless you come to Christ. It is not dependent on circumstances. It is absolutely dependent upon a person. And the last truth is this. Peace is experienced through faith. Write that down. Peace is experienced through faith. So it is not dependent upon your circumstances. God does not have to change your circumstances to bring you peace. It is dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. He alone can give it to you. You say, well, how do I experience it? How does it become a reality in my life? I mean, I think that's, that's the real question, right? How do I actually experience the peace of God? I would say to you, you experience it through faith. Faith is the way in which the peace of God, which is available to you if you have a relationship with God, is experienced in your soul. Let's say it this way, in the same way that, that the water comes to your house through the pipes, peace comes to your heart through faith. Faith is the means by which this becomes a reality in your heart. I mean, look at verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. God spoke and she believed it. Verse 38, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. There's a connection here. Her experience of peace is a result of her faith in what God has said to her. God spoke. She believed it. She experienced the peace of God. Listen to me, you know this is true. Anxieties kill our peace and faith kills our anxieties. Anxieties kill our peace. It is the anxieties of our heart which take the peace away from us. You say, well, well, what can kill the anxieties? Faith. Faith in the promises of God. I mean, the way I think this actually works just practically is this. It works like you see throughout the Psalms. It is simply in the midst of of all of the anxieties and all of the stress and all the worries and all the concerns, listen to me, just stopping. Just stop for a minute. Like my wife often does to me, she just looks at me and goes, hey, just, just take it down a little bit. Just stop. We just, we just stop and remind ourselves of who we belong to. 
and remind ourselves of what God said to us. Remind ourselves of all of the promises of God. We remind ourselves that God has promised that he would be for us, that he is not against us, that he is working for us, for our good and for his glory. He has promised to never leave us and forsake us. He has promised that his loving kindness would be with us all the days of our life. He has promised that his strength and his power is sufficient for every circumstance that we encounter. It is simply stopping and reminding ourselves of who we are. The depth of our peace is directly related to the depth of our faith. And if for some reason the anxieties are winning over me and I'm not experiencing the peace of God, it is a lack of faith in believing that what God said is true. Let me just ask you this morning. In practical reality, how much peace are you experiencing? I, I just feel like most everything else you knew, right? You know this, you know this. How much peace are you experiencing? I mean, do you feel that in the midst of all of the chaos around you, that there is a settled peace in your heart? And if not, it's not because it's not real, and it's not because it's not available, and it's not because it's not sufficient. The peace of God is real, it is available, and it's sufficient for any circumstance you might encounter. The reason that peace is not being experienced is one of two reasons. Number one, you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. That you're playing the game, you're around, you understand, you've heard the stories, but you have not actually placed your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. And says, I'm trusting you, I'm giving my life to you, I'm surrendering myself to you, or you're not living by faith in the promises of God. You are lacking the confidence that what God says is true. Someone said to me this morning, if you were here last week, this will make sense. Do we have more holy charades this morning? I think people enjoyed that sermon. I was a little funnier and a little more animated. Some of my kids told me that they only take notes when I preach good sermons, and last week was a good sermon. And, and th this, this week does feel a bit different. There's a little greater intensity, and the reason is this, is because I woke up this morning with a great desire for you to experience the peace of God that is available to you. You don't have to live with that unsettled heart, constantly overwhelmed with anxieties. You don't have to live that way. It is possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting in his promises and what he says is true to you, to simply put your hand, your life, in the hands of God and say, I trust you. Do to me according to your word. And let your heart be at rest knowing that there is a good and loving God who saved you and has good things for you. I pray that you would know it this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.